everybody. It's John. Thanks for listening. All right, this week our guests are Simon Toulson Clark and Derek Adams of the band Redbox. I don't know how many people know Redbox, but I'm hoping to turn you on to some really great music. They're an amazing band. Simon is the mastermind primarily behind Redbox. And in 1986, they released their debut album called The Circle in the Square, which I think is amazing. It's one of the most incredible bursts of creativity and ideas that I've ever heard. It touches on all these various genres. A lot of world music finds its way in there. It's incredible stuff. It never really did anything in the States. It had some some hits, some mild hits in the UK and other parts of the world. That was pretty much it. Well, then Simon goes in to start recording the second album, which is called Motive, which I also really, really like. However, as usual, label interference comes in and the sound is compromised. I still think it's really good, but you can tell that it's been compromised. It sounds a little more tamped down. That album ended up sitting on the shelf until 1990, finally came out, no promotion. Simon is frustrated, understandably, and he kind of steps away. Redbox goes into hibernation. He becomes more of a behind-the-scenes guy, does some you know, songwriting and production and that kind of a thing. Eventually, in 2010, Redbox comes back together. By now, he's joined forces with Derek, who was also a part of another iconic 80s band that you'll find out about here in a minute. And they release a third Redbox album called Plenty. Now, I like Plenty. I don't love it. It's uh, it's very mellow, very acoustic, very pretty, sort of ballady. Great stuff. I mean, Simon can really do no wrong. It doesn't include most of the hallmarks of what I think Redbox is really special for, but it's still an excellent album. Well, now they're working on a fourth album, hopefully going to be coming out later this year. Now, there's something for you to keep in mind about this uh, interview. Simon and Derek were kind enough to record themselves talking into really nice microphones. So we have two things going on here. We have my recording, which is me on the phone with them, but they're on speakerphone. So my recording of them talking doesn't sound very good from their end. Their recording of our conversation sounds great of them, but not of me because I'm sort of tinny and barely heard in the background. Now, because they're on speaker, there's a couple of moments here where I didn't quite understand what they were saying or I didn't quite hear them very well. But thankfully, we managed to merge the two recordings together fairly seamlessly. So they sound great. I sound like I normally do. I hope that makes sense. You guys will probably like it more because it sounds so much better. At least their side does. Anyway, they called me from Simon's home in London. I always kick these things off with sort of an anecdote or a story about how I discovered the band that I'm talking to. And with you guys, I remember it very specifically because it was only just a few years ago. But I was so taken with what I heard up from in Lean on Me that I immediately went and listened to the whole album. And then I listened to Motive. And I've been sort of obsessed with Red Box ever since. And i got to say, I mean, I think Circle in the Square might be one of the most incredible bursts of creativity that I've ever heard in my life. And I'm curious. Yeah. And so I just had to know more about the person who created this amazing piece of work. It's so varied and it's so, it's so amazing. Simon, you specifically, 
where do these ideas come from, and how do you manage to put them all together in this incredible album? Well, I think that's two questions. One is, how did we conceive it, or uh, how did how did it get written? The the other question, the answer is very closely related. How did we pull it off it, with a, with a, a great deal of help from other people, actually? And you know, life is full of forks in the path, and we were lucky enough to choose the right one or two at that time. And I think any group that have some, you know, some good material, which we think we had, I think you still need an awful lot of luck. And, you, you know, in those days, the effort that a record company was able to to, to pull out for a record they believed in uh, was considerable. So, uh, you know, it's down to a whole bunch of things. In terms of where did it come from, I think uh, the try and keep this answer as short as I can. My then partner in the band, Julian Close and I, shared a flat in uh, near Labrick Grove in Notting Hill, London. We were students and we lived there as students and we continued to live there as we got the band off the ground. And I was listening to a lot of Native American music. I also liked Asian music and African music. And Julian and I had a very kind of strong desire to not kind of do the obvious cliches within pop music and to somehow pull it off, to pull size off and and dynamics in different ways. And we learnt a lot, actually, off the two people most key to our success. And they were the producer of Circle in the Square, David Motion, and Chris Hughes, who, who added additional production and really helped massively make uh, Lean On Me a hit, for instance. So there were a lot of layers to it coming together, but I think the actual inspiration in that little 19th floor flat in Labrick Grove was just to have a sound that was all our own. All the groups that I liked throughout my childhood and young adulthood uh, and continue to like are the ones that sort of have an identifiable sound. So, for instance, my first squeezes, my first loves were, for myself, were probably T-Rex, Mark Bolan and David Bowie, later Led Zeppelin. But, you know, those, all those bands had a really clearly defined identity. Yeah. So I think that... And Bowie come up, almost every British person I've interviewed for this podcast. Yeah, they were they were massively exciting to our generation. That's as simple as that. You know, every decade of music, each record that is made in a in a, you know we we talk about the eighties, we talk about the seventies, but of course there's a great cusp between all of those decades. It's not quite as clear cut as that. And I think there was some there was some you know there were some great records in the eighties. It was unfortunate, I think, that a lot of the production values were rather a lot of digital reverb being used over much but you know it all had a sound i was reading a review of circle in the square the other day and it the reviewer made said a line that i thought was so uh, perfect they said that you you wouldn't they wouldn't i'm paraphrasing but it was basically that redbox was not uh, simply a synth pop band because that's a term that gets thrown around to pretty much anyone using a keyboard back then especially British bands, but that they use them as a means to an end, which I thought was the perfect way to describe your sound, especially on that first album, because you would never, there's so much instrumentation going on outside of a keyboard 
but the keyboard might be sort of like a, an anchor or something to kind of, you know, settle it in one place. I hate to pop your mental balloon, actually, but oh, um, there are very, very few synth keyboard sounds on that record, believe it or not. I, I believe you, I just, yeah. That's... Well, one of, one, of the th- one of the things we tried to do really hard w- w- was to use the technology that was happening, being able to program things, being able to trigger sounds, being able to sample for the first time. Yeah. All, all of those records that I was loving. And, 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 you know, Julian and I were quite clear about our, the direction we wanted to take with it was we wanted to make it kind of like tribal pop with a, with a, a sort of pan-world horizon. Yeah. You know, it was a big idea. Funnily enough, I think it was the very, that was the very character trait in the record that made it, on the one hand, not immediately successful on a big scale, but on the other hand, has given it a kind of cult tribe who, who, who champion it. Um, and I think that's because it's a very committed, you know, each song is very committed in its direction. But actually not many synths, mostly we were taking sounds like uh, we were sampling lots of different drums. We were recording sounds, quite conventional sounds, but doing it in uh, with distant mics in a metal teepee that we built in the middle of the studio. So a lot of the sounds, the percussion and rhythmic sounds, are are very much... I mean, the best example of that is a track called Walk Walk, where there's a kind of percussive beat, and that's all inside a metal kind of tent that we made. Trying to be original with the, the way we were absolutely, and it, and it seems even more original now in hindsight than it probably did even then. Where does this fascination with these tribal rhythms and this exotic music? Where did that come from? I mean, you went from Bolin and Bowie to Native well, American. Bowie and Bowie and um, uh, Bolin weren't really my beginning. I've got an older sister, five years older, who was really into music. So I got the Beatles and the Stones. Big time. Got Dylan, Neil Young, from her mainly. I the first Led Zeppelin album she was totally into. Hendrix. Uh, so I've still I've got a love. It was kind of what I was saying is that each decade is really the music makers in a given decade, the people who are having hit records, are actually inspired by the previous decade when they were teenagers. Actually, we were trying to have a non-80s sounding album with Circle in the Square. I, I think it ended up being quite 80s sounding, but actually the approach was not 
conventional. And that, in that, we were very lucky to have the producers we did who were, who, were, who were ready to experiment along with us. Yeah, I would agree. I think even though some of the sound might be slightly 80s in the production, the, the ideas that are... And that's what the, I think the magic of that album is, is the amount of ideas just building one after another on top of each other on every single song. I uh, know, yeah. Those are more timeless. Those are not 80s-specific ideas. I mean, you know, Warner Brothers hated it. They hated it because I think they thought, you know, if it had half as many ideas. Uh, one of the bug, one of the uh, criticisms we had in, during our little kind of creative tussle with, with Warner's at that time over this record and really how Motive would be made was that they felt it was extremely uncommercial of me to give, to give the girls whole lines of lyrics that were good lyrics, uh, like in For America. TDA to contemplate this audiovisual opiate. specific request from them that I sing all of the vocal uh, and don't have it as a question and answer thing. So, you know, we stuck to our guns, but it, it did kind of cause a rift, ultimately. I read somewhere that the, one of the things that had to be, something you had to agree to when you went into motive was to cut down on the tribal. Yeah. That, <laughs> not that the tribal is your only hallmark or, of your sound, oh. No. That's sort of one of the things that's differentiating it from from everything else. And they, they're telling you to strip away one of the main signifiers that makes you special. Yeah, but they were doing it with everybody. It wasn't just me. I mean, they, it, you know, look at, look at the experience Prince had with Warners. God, you know, if, oh, well, if, yeah. if, Prince could, if Prince couldn't steer his own ship, what chance did I have? True, true, yeah. So when Motive, I mean... So I like Motive a lot too. I mean, in my mind, if Circle in the Square is a 10, Motive is a 9. Thank you. 
go, oh yeah, this, this, it's still so clearly a unique vision, maybe slightly compromised, but still, um, I just find whatever's coming out of your mouth and your brain to be hugely fascinating. So I love that Motive album too, but you probably, I mean, do you feel a sense of like disownership of it or unsatisfaction or how do you, do you stand by it or are you kind of more, is it more bittersweet to you? No, that, that's a, it's a difficult one. I don't think I was in a great place when I made it. Um, I think my resistance had kind of been eroded over about a two-year period. I mean, I, I was very clear in my own mind that the things that defined us and the things that were really interesting about the group were those eclectic threads all woven into one rope. That was my kind of feeling about what the band were. And that we could... The great thing is, and it remains the great thing about the band, and I hope you're going to get to talk to Derek as well about our last album, which we made together, together, and also about the album we're currently making, we'd really like to talk about. But what I was going to say was, I think that all those threads that we were bringing to it to make it an, um, our horizons, you know, limitless is actually one of the great strengths of the group it is that we can try anything and so long as we're committed and we're red box about it we end up sounding well you know like us i think i'm i've grown and and started to understand and maybe even be a little proud of that territory because it is after all where i began you know wanting us to sound like no one else because what's the point you know what's the point there's so much stuff out there. It just seems like a deluge of mediocrity and, and none of it's standout or very, very rarely is it standout, but of course it's hard for it to get a voice. You know, Derek and I have introduced each other, mainly Derek introducing to me, actually some of the most amazing contemporary songwriting that's going on, but it's almost like it's off the radar in the mainstream. And I, th- I think, I think the eighties were the cusp I think that, that it was at that, I think punk deeply, deeply shocked and frightened the English music establishment. And I think sometime in the early 80s, they decided, you know what, this is becoming a visual medium, video, MTV is becoming more and more, more and more significant. And, and I think at that time, they realized that actually people like me who wanted to painstakingly craft a drum kit that changed its tuning on every chord I you know I wasn't just wasn't going to be finishing material quickly enough to feed the to feed the sausage machine and and put bluntly they could find prettier people to sing to sing stuff and that's what's happened and um I think I feel sorry for the people who are 25 to 35 who are deeply creative musically i could we could name a few couldn't we dell now mm-hmm. guillemots five day five dangerfield should be enormous should be you know girls should be in love with five dangerfield not the x factor winner yeah. you know I, i'm really quite disillusioned about how it's going and and my only answer our only answer is to just keep expressing ourselves uh, in a heartfelt way and and make music that we're da- we're leaping around the room and smiling about and if if we feel that way we just hope someone else does good good i think that's great is it derek or dell oh De- call me dell we call him all sorts of things we call him dell <laughs> delvis delphinium i just tell you i'm, I'm going to hand you over to dell for a minute but i'm uh, okay. going to tell you how we met because it's quite an interesting story 
Yeah, I'm curious, Dell, and uh, I didn't mean to keep you out of that. I wanted to kind of get a better view of the Redbox history, but now where do you come in? And then I want to talk about Plenty. I started, I started uh, Plenty as a sort of bunch of songwriting for myself, and and for I didn't even know if it would be Redbox. I hadn't really thought about it. Just starting to enjoy writing songs myself. And around that time, my wife and I bought a house in London and into the, what was the living room, God bless her, she let me install a fully equipped recording studio with a soundproof drum and guitar room. And pretty much our ground floor is that and her kitchen. She's a professional caterer. So uh, that's how it is. And uh, about the same month, Derek moved in next door and he was just we hadn't really we did we didn't move in right away we had some alterations done obviously for the studio and we were having walls doubled and we were filling the floor with sand and we were uh, floating rooms and ceilings and what you you name it we did it and during that time um, we saw Del and his wife Ali who are now our best mates uh, we even have we even have a gate through our garden fence so that we can uh, yeah, so we're next door to each other. So we moved in, and I kept it pretty quiet that what we were doing was building a recording studio because, I, you know, from, from a security point of view, you don't want to advertise these things. Uh, but I'm afraid the whole cover was blown on the day the mixer arrived because it didn't fit through the door. And they had to, it, it, it remained in the slings from a lorry uh, above the street. And while they took the window frame off to get it through the studio window and at that time Dell was out away he was working uh, he's sometime he's uh, also a journalist uh, he was writing he was writing some stuff he'll tell you all about that he was writing some stuff uh, so he wasn't here but his wife spotted it came up to me and said you're putting a studio in there and I said yes but please don't worry it's all soundproofed we've done it all properly I promise you won't notice and I've doubled the wall between our house uh, and your house so you know you won't hear it and she said no no that's not the reason I asked the reason I ask is my my husband's a musician and I kind of thought you know I've heard that before everybody sure. everybody knows a musician they're always you know I don't know how to put it politely but you know crap not, not <laughs> crap so uh, uh, you know Dell came round a uh, couple of nights later I obviously was polite about it and I said well you must send him over you know get we'll show him what we're doing I'm actually just kind of beginning to make an album he so he might be interested and Dell came over he brought uh, a mandolin and a minute and a half size guitar baby Taylor and he sat around on the sofa while I worked on a song and he was playing some nice things I could hear just playing along and jamming along, as he always does, actually, I now realise. Uh, oh, nice. I now realise how many years later, Della, we've been working together, 12 years. And I said, you know, it's sounding really nice, Derek, what you're putting down, what you're, I'm going to put a mic in front of it. And we recorded a couple of pieces, and I said, you know, you must come again. And I genuinely meant it. You've got a lovely feel and you're a lovely guitar player. And he said, oh, I'm not a guitar player, I'm a drummer. So we, I said, oh, really? Well, I've got a drum kit. Let's get that set up. So we set the drum kit up. Turns out he is a killer drummer. You know, he's obviously an experienced drummer, but, it, but he, he, he's got the most gorgeous feel. Anyway, 
we were we started working together on plenty and he'll tell you about that process and i had quite a lot of the songs but then we finished a few songs together we wrote a few songs together we were really enjoying our the relationship and then one day a friend of mine came by and said oh i heard lean on me on the radio today the red box song and and del said oh were you in red box and i said yeah and he said oh i was in dream academy do you remember that band whoa really yeah, so we'd been working together, not knowing that we were miniature 80s heroes, uh, but we were working together from about the year 2001, 2000. 2000. So 15 years ago. And uh, we're slow. We're on our second record together, but we, th- we think it's really good, this one. So wait, Dell was a member of the Dream Academy? Yeah, here's Dell. okay? I'm just going to go and stretch my legs because I'm an old man. Okay, yeah. All right, <laughs> John. Uh, yeah, no, I, I was um, I was in Dream Academy for a short period of time, but I, before that, the lead singer of Dream Academy, Nick Led Clues, um, was um, I was in a band with him called The Act, and we were signed to Hannibal Records, with with that's with Joe Boyd, the famous Joe Boyd, who was the executive producer. And it was produced by John Wood, who did the Squeeze albums. And we had an album, we, we released an album called Too Late at 20, which I think completely just disappeared. that was going for a few years and then uh then nick met gilbert gabriel and kate and john and you know started forming um the dream academy uh, a completely sort of a different direction the act was the act band was more scar related it was sort of the cusp of the specials that kind of thing oh uh whereas dream academy was a bit more esoteric acoustic slightly psychedelic but Eight, you know, sort of psychedelic, really, in a way. It was because uh, I know that Nick was a big fan of Nick Drake, so it was inspired a lot by that. He only likes musicians who who have the same name as him. He only likes musicians. Right. Yeah, I was in uh, Dream Academy for a, a short period, I might add. I probably would have been in it probably Rich more period. more permanently had I not been running out of money at home and my dear lovely wife, who was working to support both of us. Um, it got to the stage where. You know, with the, with the act, and I was doing a dabbling with a bit of Dream Academy. Um, wasn't sure if it was going to be successful, Dream Academy, but a job came up in a journalist position of which I had absolutely no idea how to type or even how to write, frankly. But I managed to, I managed to sham my way through about thirty years of journalism with a mag- with a magazine called Time Out, which you've probably heard of. Yeah, sure. I'm a, I I was a journalist too. You were okay. Well, I started off from literally not even knowing how to type, and you know my grammar was—I just wasn't a writer. And just suppose experience developed, and now, uh, and then I always will ca- carried on playing music in the background, and always will do. And now, now I still dabble with a bit of writing, writing about gadgets for you know tech radar and various websites yeah. and stuff like that at the moment. So but you were you were a member of Dream Academy. And you left just before Life in a Northern Town came out. I did. 
Plantation army band played And the children drank the lemonade And the morning lasted all day All day And through an open window came Like Sinatra in a younger day Pushing the town I did, and I actually am singing on it. I'm singing on both of the albums. I, I'm, I'm doing the, you know, I'm. Which line? You're one of the Hey Ma 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 people, or whatever. If you listen carefully, you might be able to pinpoint the voice. And I, and I was singing this this particular register, not in register, but in that this particular area. A Hey Oh Ma Ma Ma. That's all I had to do. A Hey Oh Ma Ma Ma. And then Nick would go Hey, that kind of thing. So I did that in the beginning. In the in the when the album came out, then I actually went out with them to New York. I was asked to go out to, with them to New York to play on Saturday Night Live. Really, um, I remember that you were there. And that was that was with who was on the same bill? The Cult, the Cult were on. And I, who I really liked, the Cult. The, I love the Cult too, but I would never put you two together. It was Ian Asprey, long hair. Uh, they were on as well with us, and I think the Dream Academy were more of a headline act. And that was with. Um, Three backing singers, myself, June, June, somebody, and another girl, Sam Brown, and then um, and and so we just did the, did the uh, TV show that night, and that was probably the last time I did any sort of stage-related stuff with Dream Academy, and then he called Nick, gave me a call to come back to do some singing on the second album, whose the title I've forgotten, and that was it really. I still see Nick from time to time. He's now doing a lot of soundtracks. They're on my list of people that I want to talk to for this podcast. So that's so funny that you were a member of that band. Crazy. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. Nick, Nick will probably always be available for an, e an email or something. He just he's on the on the old Facebook. Okay, Send I'll him a message. So okay, so you're in Dream Academy. It's you don't have enough money to pay your bills, which is a common story. And you decide to take this job as a journalist, and that's what you've been doing basically ever since. Right. I've been doing probably basically ever since, and then uh, and then I met Simon, and still dabbled ah. with journalism. I was still at Time Out when I met Simon, so evenings we'd come over and just start, and I'd start having you know playing playing around with with the, the tracks that Simon was recording uh, for for plenty, and and then we got to strumming together, and and then creating a few little songs ourselves between us, and that's how Plenty evolved really. And then of course we met other people, who we who we really think of as friends, I suppose. You know, what was it? the Plenty album was a little bit like Sheryl Crow's Tuesday Night Music Club. It was, in fact, oh, we did really? we we even chose a Tuesday for some bizarre reason, didn't we? To sometimes. meet on Tuesday Tuesdays evenings. Yeah, well not some yeah, Tuesdays especially was like a you know, everybody had in their calendar, whoever's involved, keep Tuesdays free no matter what, because that's is you know, a music night. So we'd you know, we every now and then three of us would be here, four of us. It was two quite of us. interesting actually how the, the lineup for that album Plenty sort of uh, coalesced around the sessions. We didn't really go into it with a band. I mean, Dell is sort of multi-instrumental, and we were we were coming up with a lot of parts anyway together. You know, drum parts, uh, bass parts. Sometimes we play the piano. One of us, one end, one the other. It was a, a, a it was you know great fun, and really I think 
it's almost like the counterpoint to the other two, the previous two records. I, I think it's got quite a lot in common. The process of friendship around music is is pretty much what Plenty is. It's a closer, more introspective record, I think. Oh, very much so. So, two things. First of all, what did you do for 20 years in between? And number two, I mean, Plenty sounds to me like a completely different person, completely different artist. On the run, we take the evening train Ride it there to ride it back again You tell a story how you want to be In the narrative I look for me Every beat my heart is in your mouth You drink me in if that's where your head is now or if you were kind of trying something new like let's do let's be more acoustic this time and ballady what's the motivation it was partly you know if you build a small studio the songs that are most easily achievable are the smaller ideas and i think i felt that making everything as small as it could be and as minimal as it could be actually was the big idea about that record. Oh, got it. Okay. And I think, you know, I learned a lot making it um, about less is more. So probably somewhere along the line, the the fourth album will be a kind of joining of the circle because I think it's it has elements of what I did, you know, two or three years ago, but also it's quite similar in many ways to the first record. Really? So your new so when is this new album coming out? It hope for as, er, as early as we can finish it in 2016. Okay, great, great. And the sound is slightly more elevated than the kind of acoustic stuff that's yeah, on Plenty? It's got, it's got more muscles, it's pacier, it's really kind of built around the sound that we now have again with two girls, good girl singers in the band. I'd, I'd say, I'd say it's actually it's a very eclectic. Will be a very eclectic album. In, in other words, it's eclectic. It's, eclectic. Yeah. it's got certainly got elements of of the style of um, Circle in the Square, that sort of period, but not with an eighty sound. And it's also got the elements of the Plenty. So there's there are well, it's a really quite a, a range. People have heard some of the uh, working tracks that we're working on at the moment. Um, Saying it's uh, it is extremely eclectic seems to be the, the the choice of word. It's uh, you know acoustic, not folky but acoustic, and then it's the reverse. You know unusual. We just like it to be, frankly, have a slightly alternative sound, but one that maybe people hopefully will like a lot. Though. Huh? It's quite up tempo. It is mostly far more up tempo, I think, generally than plenty. But we have unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, actually, we have fortunately twenty one to twenty three 
sort of A-list songs. songs. And so a, what we another twenty on the B list, and another twenty on the B list. So um, so we have an, an awful lot to choose from for a for a first album, and uh, with some singles, obviously preceded with singles, which are, which really are just non-existent. The single thing, but of course that's how the world works. So get a song out. Uh, they are still significant singles, but I still think not not like they were, you know, were because well, I think today even now the album's not as significant as a package because we all cherry pick, myself included, go to iTunes and you think, oh, listen to track one of this, mm, not bad, you know, well, you find a track you like and then eventually you might end up buying the whole album because you love, you know, tracks two, three, and seven that you downloaded. Yeah. I feel um, I make sure to collect from the bands that I I'm devoted to, though. You know, like my favorite bands, I don't cherry pick them as much. And Redbox is definitely one of those bands where I want to, I want to hold the entire album in my hand. It's not enough for me to just download it. I want to own a piece of it. You know, and I'm glad to hear that eclecticism is kind of coming back because to me, and I mean, you know, who cares what I think? But that to me, Simon, is what is sort of the magic of what what I know about you or the music you've put out there so far is that amazing eclecticism and plenty as nice as it was. It's a beautiful record. It's more in keeping with kind of a single, a, a single pace. There's not a lot of variations in sound. It's yeah, kind of more yeah. mellow. Yeah. It's a moment in time. Each one is. And it, it's really, it's really reflective of where you're at in your life and, and what you're listening to and what's inspiring you. But, you know, I, I think um, very naturally around the, the lineup we have uh, now, we've done quite a lot of live playing in the last three years, uh, you know, for, because Plenty came out. And I think we're going to do more because this album feels to me very much more connecting and it feels like a bigger idea, you know, which I think is sort of what we do, really. Actually, we we were extremely surprised, weren't we, I suppose, when... You, when, when uh what tracks in plenty? Well, two or three tracks in plenty. I think the sign uh, suddenly became extremely popular in Poland. That's what I was going to ask you. Where did, what's this Poland connection? In fact, I thought I assumed you might even live there. Because everything I was seeing is you in Poland. One of us do live in Poland, actually. Yes, um, not me um, or Simon. Uh, no, the Pol- the Polish thing I think harks back to. The period of Glasnost, doesn't it, really? That's the story I keep getting from it. And, of course, I wasn't in the original Red Box, but when Chenko came out, which is a very crowd-pleasing chant kind of track, isn't it?
it's got those kind of oh way oh oh type stuff that people like to sing worldwide and in poland i think they they treated it as a sort of as a sort of mantra didn't they as a as an anthem for themselves in celebration of the you know the walls collapsing in you know in berlin and 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 everywhere else in the you know in the uh, soviet empire kind of thing so so consequently the people the first music they the first pop music they got was in the in the early 80s that's true through a very influential radio dj called uh piotr kachkovsky he's a legend there uh and continues to be and they're very connected to the to pop music on the radio in poland so and funnily enough in england because we are perceived as people who had us our, our time our success in in yeah. that in that period it's quite hard for us to get played on national you know network radio i wondered about that but our new material but we're, we're obviously we are we do get played and we can we can kind of walk into radio in this country and do sessions and interviews we have a, a, a sort of good pedigree if you like but there it is harder with new material if you're older uh, whereas in poland i think the very fact that they loved what we did with the circle and the square and uh, motive i think that made them listen very closely to plenty and and try and find a song or two that they could put on the radio and both of those songs beca- became number one in poland so we 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 toured there quite extensively in quite big venues. Yeah. So Poland has been on the Red Box bandwagon since the beginning. And to them, when Plenty comes out, it's like, yes, finally some music from someone we love versus maybe in England or other parts of the world where it's like, ah, oh, these guys are kind of more of a, they've had their moment. We don't need to play something new from them. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, John, you've, uh, you've, you've hit the bullseye. Fascinating. But the, the, the other encouraging thing I'd like to just add is that when we, we've done numerous gigs in Poland, mm-hmm. um, numerous outdoor concerts as well, where, we're, where people are just walking past and will be, you know, free, free, free uh-huh. gigs or something. Where, and the great thing is we do seem to be attracting, which is quite pleasant, a, a, quite a few younger fans. Yeah, it's, so, fun, it's funny because our fans split into the ones who we gained who are now, of course, middle-aged, the ones we gained in Circle in the Square, and a whole new generation with Plenty, which was huge there. Wow. I mean, some of them in Poland, I think, have heard the Plenty and then gone back in retrospect to the earlier ones, not really yeah. having heard of them, because they're, you know, they're really? 19, 20, 27 type of thing. So they're of that age where they're, you know, of, of yeah. now, as it were. So that's, in, that's, that's, that's quite encouraging, yeah. I mean, 20, 25 years after your heyday, you're being discovered... For your new music that sounds very different in Poland of all places. Exactly. Yeah, that's. I mean, it surprised us, and of course, we'd like we'd like to we'd, as much as we love Poland, we naturally for next year want to get as many gigs in other parts of Europe as possible. We know that we've got a fan base in Germany, in Netherlands, uh, Belgium, but you know, France would be great, and then one day maybe America would be a wonderful thing. We we do know well, we, we we know we have at least two no. fans in America, yourself and someone else. <laughs> <laughs> There's one other guy. <laughs> There's one other guy. Yeah. So that okay. Well, that leads me to where I what I wanted to ask you about next, which is, I mean, do you have? Or was that a joke? Do you have much of a presence in America? Have you ever? Because, like I said, I mean, I was, I was a teenager, but I was, I'm, I've always been keyed into music and what's going on, and I don't recall, I don't know that I've ever heard Redbox 
I don't know that I ever heard of Redbox, let alone well, heard a, saw a video or heard them on the radio. What What happened for us in America was that actually our first single release on WEA Warner's, uh, it was on Sire, um, which of course is part of Warner Brothers. It, that was a cover version of a Buffy Saint Marie song. Who was a Buffy Saint Marie? Was a uh, she's a Native American well. singer-songwriter. She was on Sesame Street all the time when I was a little boy. Fantastic songwriter. And I covered one of her songs. We covered one of her songs called uh, Capel Valley, Saskatchewan. For obvious reasons, that gained some Canadian airplay and we got a few Canadian fans. And subsequently, those fans got into Circle in the Square. And there was a kind of bleed a bit into Northeast America. And we, okay, went to, okay. we went to Boston. We did a couple of gigs in up there, um, probably in the late 80s, I should think, 87 maybe. Uh, and we did have kind of pockets of good radio play. Obviously, uh, people didn't get the joke and the tongue-in-cheek with For America in America. In America. And I, 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 don't, I think that everybody would have taken it exactly as it was meant um, in terms of public perception. But the only people who really kind of were, thought it was um, inappropriate were actually American record executives. Uh, so, you know, that was a kind of thorn in everybody's side i think that song even though it was our actually statistically our biggest selling song um it's it was yeah. it was big all around europe wow interesting now you were mentioning playing live gigs i mean again going back to sort of the burst of ideas involved in that first album was that a sound you were able to replicate in a club somewhere or were you more of like a studio band creating these these sounds in the studio if you'd asked me that like f four or five years ago, I'd have said, we are principally a recording studio band. Okay. Um, but actually the experience of, t of going out on the road with Plenty, and of course our set split about half and half between Plenty and songs from Circle and the Square and Motive. And I think some of them we did a really pretty authentic version of. I, you know, naturally... I personally believe that you need to move and, and you need to move. Simply reconstructing a sound around backing tapes doesn't really appeal to me. So it is. it was completely live, but we all sing in the band and it's a seven-piece band. So actually, harmonically, which is key, I think we were, pr we were pretty nearly there. I hope. I'm excited to... Is there any possibility that you would play a show in the States? 
Never mind where I am. But you find a promoter, we'll be there. We would love. We no, would love it. I, I could think of no better place for me to, to to tour than the states. I mean, actually, frankly, that's a bit of a it's a bit of a dream in that respect. You know, it's the yeah. crossing the states in a in a bus, or I don't care how it is, frankly, sure. but just playing to the states in you know in in, in american small clubs and building up a you know we a, we've just got such a love of american music go, dating back to the 50s and even beyond that for, for Dell, you know he's like some um well i'm a big americana fan yeah. there's a lot of people i really really i've always liked and they're mostly sort of more of the left field sparkle horsey type stuff yeah oh interesting sparkle horse okay well i sure hope that happens i mean selfishly i would love it so uh, one other thing, Simon, I wanted to ask you specifically. I mentioned it earlier. I don't know that I found out. What did you do for 20 years in between Motive and, and it's, I mean, you even kind of gave up on Motive. So maybe it was even 22 years. What did you, how do you pay your bills? Well, after, after Motive, we traveled for a bit. Um, my wife and I, tra- uh, we sailed, in fact, in the Mediterranean for the better part of two years. Yeah, it was okay. fantastic. We ran out of money in the end and came back. During that time, um, w- when I was on Warner Brothers, uh, the head of A&R was promoted uh, to be a kind of managing director, and he started his own uh, label called East West Records and took most of the English talent with him. Uh, it, was, it was part of Warner Brothers, but it was a, a British and English London-based label. And when I came back after Motive, after a couple of years, he gave me a job. He asked if I wanted to be like an in-house songwriter, producer, and help help with making records. And I did that for about 10 years for him, working with lots and lots of, mostly uncredited, <laughs> lots, and lo- lots and lots of the Warner Brothers artists. I was on a salary from, from them to help in making records. Sometimes, sometimes with sort of songwriting help with the artists or just discovering what it was they were about as songwriters for the label, making demos, um, sometimes producing, lots of different things. Would you have worked with anyone we would have heard of? Yeah, I worked with most, some in some form or another, I would have worked with most of the people on East West. Oh, good. Okay, great. Almost for everybody. Uh, uh, the only, I think, uh, mostly I was working. I did quite a lot with Tanita Tikaram. I did. Oh, with... really? Interesting. Okay. All good children need traveling shoes. Drive your problems from here. All good people read good books. Now your conscience is clear. I hear you talk. Uh, 
Chris Rea, um, who was, uh, I mean, you know, a- anybody who released a record on there, The Cause, Simply Red. So I was either editing their stuff or sometimes involved in the studio. Yeah. Okay. Did you find that fulfilling? I mean, you may have sounded like your music experience of your own after the motive period may have kind of soured you to putting yourself out there. Was it, did you enjoy being behind the scenes like that? Well, I, I think I did. You know, it was weird because I think probably somewhere in my core, I never really gave up the idea that I would make my own records again. But it just took me a while to kind of get back to know how to do that for myself. It's kind of weird, you know, being employed to help other people make records, but actually having not quite answered the question within your own self. Uh, And so I suppose it was an inevitability. I think meeting Dell and us making Plenty was a good exercise, in a way, for us properly making a proper Redbox record, which is what we're doing now. So that the answer is, for about 10 years I did that, I've continued to occasionally edit or um, uh, produce other people. I did a fair amount of work with Paul Oakenfold on his label. Um, whoa, wow. And um, a lot with uh, sort of remixing, you know, you know, where there was a musical need, really, because they, they were fantastic at mixing. It was basically a bunch of remixes that, that that's what they were doing. And um, so all sorts of things, really. And then we built this studio and started making our own music again. So I suppose that accounts for about 15 of those 20 years. And then we released plenty. And we've been writing solidly for the last couple of years to make this record. You know, we're not quick. We're not quick. Yeah. But being a musician now is your primary job yeah it always has been yeah and always will be being your own musician working on your own stuff whether that you know you went fully fully independent about 10 years ago i suppose okay and 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 then it has been hard at times i mean it is you know we're, we're short of money to make the next record really but rather than do it and hurry it we just we we just make sure we we make sure we give it the same love and attention but it may take longer yeah yeah, okay. And you're able to pay your bills with royalties from Plenty and anything else and shows probably in Poland and Yeah, the shows the shows are, you know, as any musician con- uh, currently working will tell you, the shows are extremely important uh, as are, you know, t-shirts and CDs. Uh it's all it's all supportive of the main event for me, which is to make a record and make a statement. And hopefully something that people will, will you know, some, something that people will remember. And remember with a kind of warm feeling. Sure. That's the best thing. That's the best thing about it. And I guess there were probably turns in that road I could have taken and maybe got rich. But, you know, for one reason or another, I didn't take them. I think probably I have a slight self-destruct uh, tendency. Maybe. Well, but you also still have your integrity too. I mean, it's very obvious to me. And again, I don't. I know very little about you, which is a common occurrence with bands that I interview for this podcast because there's not a whole lot of information about them out there sometimes. No. But your independent spirit and streak is blatantly obvious from the first few minutes 
uh, circle in the square, you know? I mean, it's clearly a guy who's going to do what he wants to do and play to his vision, and the rest of you better hop along or you're just going to be left behind. I mean, that's how, that's how I view you. I'm glad you view me like that, John. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, of course. That's a, that's a compliment. Well, it's, absolutely it is. I mean, I'm on board for anything you do. I think you have an amazing voice, uh, a creative voice. Okay, he thank has, you. Actually, Simon has got a very quite a unique voice because, and, and when you, when you've watched, the, you know, X Factor, for instance, and they how the voices really sound so similar, and in a way, yeah. I think the same thing has happened for, for when I was at Time Out. I was doing film reviews, and I just actually got fed up with films because I couldn't tell there were no characterful voices. Yeah. Interesting. You're right. The uh, Cary Grant voices and the, you know, the James Mason. These were kind of voices that you knew who those people were. Now you could get a lot of the actors to to be doing a voiceover in an animated film, for instance, and you wouldn't have a clue. You wouldn't be able to say, oh, that's so-and-so. They just sound like anyone. So I think with music as well, there's, there's this sort of um, generic-y kind of sound. Yeah, yeah. And I hear it on X Factor so often. There's just what you want is somebody who frankly can't sing very well. Maybe like a Mark Armand who's got a great uh, character. So personally, I feel that the good thing is Simon does sing in tune and has great characterful voice. But, but, but you know, Bob Dylan didn't often sing in tune, but a great characterful voice, and that's the most important part. Rather than somebody who can sing superbly well and is just as bland as they, you know, that horrible bland sound, very X Factory. And unfortunately, you know. We're knocking, we're knocking X Factor again, but it's, you know... It's about coming up with melodies, though, isn't it, that suit your voice? It is about coming up with melodies to suit your voice, and Simon's very good at coming up with melodies like that as well. So, um, yeah, yeah. So, we, so yes, we're, we're just hoping, hoping the next album sort of does, uh, uh, does it a little bit more. We obviously want to push, push where we can. It's the marketing element, which, of course, is the, can be the costly side. But I suppose one benefit, even though bands don't make anything like as much money in this day and age or, you know, even a, yeah. even a vague living um, by selling albums. I mean, the live stuff is where it's where it's all at. Um, but I suppose in the old days, they didn't people, bands didn't have the Internet. So if you no matter if you were just a nobody, but a you know, really classy little act, but just nobody knew about nobody, nobody would ever hear about you because there was no if you didn't have a deal, that's it. Well, I wouldn't know Redbox without the internet. <laughs> I wouldn't know Redbox without the like downside of the internet, which is the yeah. illegal downloading. Yeah, yes, you know? exactly. Well, that's part of the whole thing, isn't it? The illegal downloading has created this whole new business model where yeah. ba bands and artists and songwriters don't get very little uh, back from the songwriting. You know, I mean, the you know royalties from Plenty would be you know really by comparison to something if it had been out in the 70s or 80s. A, today well, pitiful as as nearly all artists royalties are they are from from records are really pretty non-existent you know itunes and all those people paid sort of just small sums and there's always there's always is and there always will be the people who are skimming off the top in every industry frankly isn't there there's always there are always little lot of middle people taking a little bit of a cut here and there and the person who invents the the wheel at the bottom of the pile gets you know tuppence yeah it's yeah. true, and you guys are the ones who created it. You're the last well, ones to benefit. John, um, I, I think that everything comes full circle. We we write songs. We wrote songs because uh, we were excited by the process and sometimes the result uh, as young men, and it's kind of the same reason now. 
Uh, it's linked very closely with doing something with your friends that can support everybody and that feeling of, you know, companionship. We're, we're going to release in 2016 what we hope will be... I can't wait. ...definitive Red Box record. So I hope you'll, choo- I hope you'll tune in again then. Oh, are you kidding? I'm on board for whatever Redbox does. We can update this conversation. Yes, and do spread the word. I will, for sure. I mean, that's the case now, isn't it? Spreading the word. But, you know, I suppose in that respect, the internet's quite a good thing if you can, if, if the word gets out there. So well, that's, yeah. what I hope. that's why I started this thing, was because I wanted to shed light on music I believed in that deserved more attention. Yeah, we know. And well, well done to you, too, on that. I've, yeah. I've heard a few of your podcasts, and they've been really, really interesting. Oh, thank you for saying so, um, that. Yeah. I, had a little, I had a little dip in and out. Yeah, um, we, we thought they were good, John. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That means a lot. It's, you it's, can edit this bit off the interview, you know. Check's in the post. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So let me, okay, one final question for both of you. And this is somebody, something I try to ask pretty much everyone I talk to. So when you look back on your careers, what would you see, what do you think is the absolute highlight when you're sitting alone by yourself quietly, not thinking about anything else, what is the most amazing memory swirling around in your head that a passersby would be just that, – is it that feeling that, of hearing yourself on the radio for the first time or writing a first song or meeting a hero or whatever? And then what is your biggest regret? And I want to hear from both of you, and then we'll be pretty much done. Yeah, well, that's a, that is a tricky one. I mean, it could be the first time. Yes, it is a great thing when you hear your record on the radio. For me, that was with the um, that was with the act, which was pre pre Dream Academy when we toured Spain, and we were in the car, and that was when I was quite young at that point. Heard the radio, you know, the song on the radio, and we thought, "Wow, we've arrived!" <laughs> so it is, it is a great moment, no matter how small the radio station may have been or whatever it was. It was obviously maybe a national one, but yeah, that was a great moment, and of course playing. Playing our first gigs in in Poland actually because we didn't really didn't expect that you know we put the record out and did a couple of gigs in in the UK and we will be doing some more because clearly we have some fans here, but the the I think it was the first gig in in Poland I don't know which one it was and it was the the amazing response from the fans as well and they are very responsive fans in 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 Poland I I do rate them highly as as sort of people who kind of really do appreciate the music. Frankly, you could look like the you could have a face like a, babo- a baboon's ass and be 110 years old, and as long as the music is great, that's all that seems to matter to them over there. Which is kind of a nice, it's a it's it's actually it's an honest way of listening to music. Where of course in the UK we're very cynical here and unbelievably pretentious. So there's a lot of people who might like Coldplay, who I adore. Uh, but we'll, we'll say they don't like Coldplay because it's cool to not like Coldplay, and I just, yeah. I just, I have no time for that kind of thing. If I like something, you know, I'll say uh, I, I like it, even if it's a schmaltzy song. As if it's a good schmaltzy song, sure, that, that's fine. Oh yeah, I like everything. I can find the good in just about anything, and I think that's an important trait, especially with music. I don't understand snobbery in music. Why? Yeah, you don't why either. feel like you can't like something? Yeah, if it speaks to you, you like it. Who cares what it is and where it came from? That's yeah. the whole point. Exactly. But also, you know, you don't you don't like every chocolate in the box, but you still buy another. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to tell you my best moment. There are two of them. There are two of them, John. Uh, this is this is Simon speaking. Uh, my, my first would be a concert 
which was, I think, the best concert we did in the Red Box the first time round, would have been probably uh, sometime in the mid-80s. We played at Venice Carnival in uh, uh, San Marco, the main square, in front of the Basilica. Uh, we were taken to the dressing rooms, which incidentally were an art gallery, uh, by um, stretch limo boat, speedboat, with armed with armed guards uh we were we were in, at that time about an eight piece i think and we all changed in this beautiful art gallery went out and did the show in front of ten thousand people and afterwards we went to the fair it was amazing i just remember kind of you know moments and, and i remember actually thinking i i need to remember the night you know it, it was a stage in our lives where um, the boys in the band were, for some mysterious reason, being approached by women way out of our league. And I, and I think on that particular occasion, two very beautiful Italian girls offered to plump up my pillows in the hotel. Nice! And Strap so, on a guitar and anyone... Now, well, look, you look like George Michael. I've seen those old videos. Be, you were a good-looking guy, Simon. Well, listen, George, looking like George Michael isn't, some, isn't a badge of honour. Uh, <laughs> but he was a good-looking guy back in the day. You had that similar kind of, you know. With those satin shorts, John, how could, how could anybody have ever been in any doubt? <laughs> um, anyway, what, moving moving swiftly on, my second one would be the moment that our new music made it to number one in Poland. Yeah, uh, that was kind of pretty special too. So those are my two moments. Uh, the bad moments. The bad moments are realizing I can't this month or next month hire Abbey Road and just finish this damn album yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I. Uh, I mean, I just gotta say, as someone who is endlessly fascinated by you guys, you've put out some of the most amazing music I've ever heard, and I'm not saying that lightly. I really, honestly mean that. And I can't wait to hear what you come up with because any idea that you have that you feel strongly enough to put to tape, I want to know what that is. Cool. You're an amazing artist. I hope that you get more of the attention you deserve because it's mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing to me. Okay, well, thank you very much. Hope we can continue to blow your mind. That comment blew mine, actually. So (laughs) we're going to go now. And... um, you know, thank you so much. The uh, $50,000 you're giving us for this interview will be really, really useful at the orphanage. <laughs> Anything for the kids. Yeah, do it for the kids, John. All right, there you go. Simon and Derek from Redbox. I can't stress this enough. If you have any kind of appreciation for 80s music, and I hesitate to say that because Circle in the Square is so good no matter what a decade of, of time it came out in. It's just that you, if you can appreciate 80s music, you will probably appreciate it even more. Please go find it. It's on iTunes for like $9.99 or something. Just buy it. It's great. Huge, huge thanks to Aaron Syrett, the OG producer of this podcast, for putting those two recordings together to come up with what we have for this podcast. He did a masterful job of that. And then, of course, Jan Makevich, as always, did all the rest. So grateful for those two. They made this one happen. Please find us on iTunes. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. 
Please tell friends to subscribe to the podcast. Write us a review. I don't care if they're good or bad. Good ones are better, but I can take the constructive criticism. Find us on Facebook. Like our page. You can stay in contact with us that way. You can talk to me on Twitter at the Hustle Pod. You can email me at the hustlepod at gmail.com and subscribe to our playlist on YouTube. Just type in the Hustle Podcast Playlist. All right. Thanks, everybody. Love you all. We'll talk to you next week. Family life.